Book One, Sections Six through Eight of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book One, The Domain of King Cole, Section Six. For three days Hal toiled in the bowels of the mine, and ate and pursued vermin at Reminitsky's. Then came a blessed Sunday, and he had a couple of free hours to see the sunlight and to get a look at the North Valley camp. It was a village straggling along more than a mile of the mountain canyon. In the center were the great breaker buildings, the shaft house, and the power house with its tall chimneys. Nearby were the company store and a couple of saloons. There were several boarding houses, like Reminitsky's, and long rows of board cabins containing from two to four rooms each, some of them occupied by several families. A little way up a slope stood a schoolhouse, and another small one-room building which served as a church, the clergyman belonging to the general fuel company denomination. He was given the use of the building, by way of start over the saloons, which had to pay a heavy rental to the company. It seemed a proof of the innate perversity of human nature that even in spite of this advantage, heaven was losing out in the struggle against hell in the coal camp. As one walked through this village, the first impression was of desolation. The mountains towered, barren and lonely, scarred with the wounds of geologic ages. In these canyons the sun set early in the afternoon, the snow came early in the fall. Everywhere nature's hand seemed against man, and man had succumbed to her power. Inside the camps one felt a still more cruel desolation, that of sordidness and animalism. There were a few pitiful attempts at vegetable gardens, but the cinders and smoke killed everything, and the prevailing color was of grime. The landscape was strewn with ash heaps, old wire and tomato cans, and smudged and smutty children playing. There was a part of the camp called Shanty Town, where, amid miniature mountains of slag, some of the lowest of the newly arrived foreigners had been permitted to build themselves shacks out of old boards, tin, and sheets of tar paper. These homes were beneath the dignity of chicken houses, yet in some of them a dozen people were crowded men and women sleeping on old rags and blankets on a cinder floor. Here the babies swarmed like maggots. They wore, for the most part, a single ragged smock, and their bare buttocks were shamelessly upturned to the heavens. It was so the children of the cavemen must have played, thought Hal, and waves of repulsion swept over him. He had come with love and curiosity, but both motives failed here. How could a man of sensitive nerves, aware of the refinements and graces of life, learn to love these people, who were an affront to his every sense, a stench to his nostrils, a jabbering to his ear, a procession of deformities to his eye? What had civilization done for them? What could it do? After all, what were they fit for, but the dirty work they were penned up to do? So spoke the haughty race-consciousness of the Anglo-Saxon, contemplating these Mediterranean hordes, the very shape of whose heads was objectionable. But Hal stuck it out, and little by little new vision came to him. First of all, it was the fascination of the mines. 
They were old mines, veritable cities tunneled out beneath the mountains, the main passages running for miles. One day Hal stole off from his job and took a trip with a rope rider, and got through his physical senses a realization of the vastness and strangeness and loneliness of this labyrinth of night. In number two mine the vein ran up at a slope of perhaps five degrees. In part of it the empty cars were hauled in long trains by an endless rope, but coming back loaded they came of their own gravity. This involved much work for the spraggers, or boys who did the breaking. It sometimes meant runaway cars, and fresh perils added to the everyday perils of coal mining. The vein varied from four to five feet in thickness, a cruelty of nature which made it necessary that the men at the working face, the place where new coal was being cut, should learn to shorten their stature. After Hal had squatted for a while and watched them at their tasks, he understood why they walked with head and shoulders bent over, and arms hanging down, so that, seeing them coming out of the shaft in the gloaming, one thought of a file of baboons. The method of getting out the coal was to undercut it with a pick, and then blow it loose with a charge of powder. This meant that the miner had to lie on his side while working, and accounted for other physical peculiarities. Thus, as always, when one understood the lives of men, one came to pity instead of despising. Here was a separate race of creatures, subterranean, gnomes, pent up by society for purposes of its own. Outside, in the sunshine-flooded canyon, long lines of cars rolled down with their freight of soft coal, coal which would go to the ends of the earth, to places the miner never heard of, turning the wheels of industry whose products the miner would never see. It would make precious silks for fine ladies. It would cut precious jewels for their adornment. It would carry long trains of softly upholstered cars across deserts and over mountains. It would drive palatial steamships out of wintry tempests into gleaming tropic seas. And the fine ladies in their precious silks and jewels would eat and sleep and laugh and lie at ease, and would know no more of the stunted creatures of the dark than the stunted creatures knew of them. Hal reflected upon this, and subdued his Anglo-Saxon pride, finding forgiveness for what was repulsive in these people, their barbarous, jabbering speech, their vermin-ridden homes, their bare-bottomed babies. End of Section 6 Section 7 It chanced before many days that Hal got a holiday, relieving the monotony of his labors as stableman, an accidental holiday not provided for in his bargain with the pit-boss. Something went wrong with the ventilating course in number two, and he began to notice a headache, and heard the men grumbling that their lamps were burning low. Then, as matters began to get serious, orders came to get the mules to the surface. Which meant an amusing adventure. The delight of Hal's pets at seeing the sunlight was irresistibly comic. They could not be kept from lying down and rolling on their backs in the cinder-strewn street, and when they were corralled in a distant part of the camp where actual grass grew, 
They abandon themselves to rapture like a horde of schoolchildren at a picnic. So Hal had a few free hours, and being still young and not cured of idle curiosities, he climbed the canyon wall to see the mountains. As he was sliding down again toward evening, a vivid spot of color was painted into his picture of mine life. He found himself in somebody's backyard, and being observed by somebody's daughter, who was taking in the family wash. It was a splendid figure of a lass, tall and vigorous, with the sort of hair that in polite circles is called auburn, and that flaming color in the cheeks which is nature's recompense to people who live where it rains all the time. She was the first beautiful sight Hal had seen since he had come up the canyon, and it was only natural that he should be interested. It seemed to him that, so long as the girl stared, he had a right to stare back. It did not occur to him that he too was a pleasing sight, that the mountain air had given color to his cheeks and a shine to his gay brown eyes, while the mountain winds had blown his wavy brown hair. "'Hello,' said she, at last, in a warm voice, unmistakably Irish. "'Hello yourself,' said Hal, in the accepted dialect. Then he added, with more elegance, "'Pardon me for trespassing on your wash.' Her gray eyes opened wider. "'Go on,' she said. "'I'd rather stay,' said Hal. "'It's a beautiful sunset.' "'I'll move so ye can see it better.' She carried her armful of clothes over and dropped them into the basket. "'No,' said Hal, "'it's not so fine now. The colors have faded.' She turned and gazed at him again. "'Go on with ye. I've been teased about my hair since before I could talk.' "'Tis envy,' said Hal, dropping into her way of speech, and he came a few steps nearer so that he could inspect the hair more closely." It lay above her brow in undulations which were agreeable to the decorative instinct, and a tight heavy braid of it fell over her shoulders and swung to her waistline. He observed the shoulders, which were sturdy, obviously accustomed to hard labor, not conforming to accepted romantic standards of femininity, yet having an athletic grace of their own. They were covered with a faded blue calico dress, unfortunately not entirely clean, also, the young man noticed, there was a rent in one shoulder through which a patch of skin was visible. The girl's eyes, which had been following his, became defiant. She tossed a piece of her washing over the shoulder, where it stayed through the balance of the interview. "'Who are ye?' she demanded suddenly. "'My name's Joe Smith. I'm a stableman in number two. "'And what were ye doin' up there, if a body might ask?' She lifted her gray eyes to the bare mountainside, down which he had come sliding in a shower of loose stones and dirt. "'I've been surveying my empire,' said he. "'Your what?' "'My empire. The land belongs to the company, but the landscape belongs to him who cares for it.' She tossed her head a little. "'Where did ye learn to talk like ye do?' "'In another life,' said he, "'before I became a stable-man. "'Not in entire forgetfulness, "'but trailing clouds of glory did I come.' "'For a moment she wrestled with this, "'then a smile broke upon her face. "'Sure, tis like a poetry book. "'Say some more.' 
O singe fort so suess und find, quoted Hal, and saw her look puzzled. Aren't you American? she inquired, and he laughed. To speak a foreign language in North Valley was not a mark of culture. I've been listening to the crowd at Reminitsky's, he said, apologetically. Oh, you eat there? I go there three times a day. I can't say I eat very much. Could you live on greasy beans? Sure, laughed the girl. The good old pertates is good enough for me. I should have said you lived on rose-leaves, he observed. Go on, witchy, tis the blarney stone ye been kissin. Tis no stone I'd be wastin' my kisses on. You're gettin' bold, Mr. Smith, I'll not listen to ye. And she turned away and began industriously taking her clothes from the line. But Hal did not want to be dismissed. He came a step closer. Coming down the mountainside, he said, I found something wonderful. It's bare and grim up there, but I came on a sheltered corner where the sun shone and there was a wild rose. Only one, I thought to myself. So roses grow, even in the loneliest parts of the world. Sure, tis a poetry book again, she cried. Why didn't she bring the rose? There is a poetry book that tells us to leave the wild rose on its stalk. It will go on blooming there, but if one were to pluck it, it would wither in a few hours. He had meant nothing more by this than to keep the conversation going, but her answer turned the tide of their acquaintance. Ye can never be sure, lad. Perhaps to-night a storm may come and blow it to pieces. Perhaps if ye'd pulled it and been happy, t'would have been what the rose was for. Whatever of unconscious patronage there had been in the poet's attitude was lost now in the eternal mystery. Whether the girl knew it, or cared, she had won the woman's first victory. She had caught the man's mind and pinned it with curiosity. What did this wild rose of the mining camps mean? The wild rose, apparently unconscious that she had said anything epoch-making, was busy with the wash, and meantime Hal Warner studied her features and pondered her words. From a lady of sophistication they would have meant only one thing, an invitation, but in this girl's clear gray eyes was nothing of wantonness, only pain. But what was this pain in the face and words of one so young, so eager and alive? Was it the melancholy of her race, the thing one got in old folk songs? Or was it a new and special kind of melancholy, engendered in mining camps in the far west of America? The girl's countenance was as intriguing as her words. Her gray eyes were set under sharply defined dark brows, which did not match her hair. Her lips also were sharply defined and straight, almost without curves, so that it seemed as if her mouth had been painted in carmine upon her face. These features gave her, when she stared at you, an aspect vivid and startling, bold with a touch of defiance. But when she smiled, the red lips would curve into gentler lines, and the gray eyes would become wistful and seemingly darker in color. Winsome indeed, but not simple, was this Irish lass. End of section 7 Section 8 
Hal asked the name of his new acquaintance, and she told him it was Mary Burke. "'Ye've not been here long, I take it,' she said, "'or ye'd have heard of Red Mary. "'Tis along of this hair.' "'I've not been here long,' he answered, "'but I shall hope to stay now, along of this hair. "'May I come to see you some time, Miss Burke?' She did not reply, but glanced at the house where she lived. It was an unpainted, three-room cabin, more dilapidated than the average, with bare dirt and cinders about it, and what had once been a picket fence, now falling apart and being used for stove-wood. The windows were cracked and broken, and upon the roof were signs of leaks that had been crudely patched. "'May I come?' he made haste to ask again, so that he would not seem to look too critically at her home. "'Perhaps she may,' said the girl, as she picked up the clothes-basket. He stepped forward, offering to carry it, but she did not give it up. Holding it tight, and looking him defiantly in the face, she said, "'Ye may come, but ye'll not find it a happy place to visit, Mr. Smith. Ye'll hear soon enough from the neighbors.' "'I don't think I know any of your neighbors,' said he. There was sympathy in his voice, but her look was no less defiant. "'Ye'll hear about it, Mr. Smith, but ye'll hear also that I hold me head up, and tis not so easy to do that in North Valley.' "'You don't like the place?' he asked, and he was amazed by the effect of this question, which was merely polite. It was as if a storm-cloud had swept over the girl's face. "'I hate it. Tis a place of fear and devils.' He hesitated a moment, then, "'Will you tell me what you mean by that when I come?' But Red Mary was winsome again. "'When ye come, Mr. Smith, I'll not be entertaining ye with troubles. I'll put on me company manner, and we'll go out for a nice walk, if ye please.' All the way as he walked back to Reminitsky's to supper, Hal thought about this girl, not merely her pleasantness to the eye, so unexpected in this place of desolation, but her personality, which baffled him, the pain that seemed always just beneath the surface of her thoughts, the fierce pride which flashed out at the slightest suggestion of sympathy, the way she had of brightening when he spoke the language of metaphor, however trite. How had she come to know about poetry books? He wanted to know more about this miracle of nature, this wild rose blooming on a bare mountainside. End of section 8